0: If you have your Bibles this morning, I would invite your attention to the book of Genesis, chapter 8. Genesis, chapter 8. As we continue our sermon series through the book of Genesis, um, I'm reminded that last week we saw that God remembered Noah, that God had not. Forgotten Noah as he was drifting in the ark atop the floodwaters. God remembered his covenant with Noah and acted graciously upon it, delivering him out of the ark safely. But now as we come to the conclusion of Genesis chapter eight, we find that not only has God not forgotten Noah, but Noah has not forgotten God for as he embarks from the ark disembarks from the ark there must have been a thousand things that he was thinking needed to be done his to-do list must have been a thousand miles long but at the close of Genesis 8 Noah's priority is to worship the Lord his God he builds an altar and worships the Lord and so if you have found your place the Genesis chapter 8 I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together Beginning in verse 20, the word of the Lord says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and took every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night will not cease. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Well, as we've journeyed through this flood narrative, we have seen the character of God on display in some magnificent ways. We have seen that God is holy against sin, that he hates sin and loves righteousness. And because of his holiness, God is just against sin, pouring out his wrath upon it. We have seen God's power and his sovereignty as he commands the spring waters of the earth to burst forth and for the clouds to bring forth rain, bringing a flood upon the earth. He is sovereign over His creation. We have seen His majestic greatness in that through His Through bringing this flood, God has decreated, uncreated the earth, bringing it back almost to its original form in the beginning and now recreating it, establishing Noah as a second Adam. We have seen God's faithfulness as he has entered into that covenant promise to Noah and he has maintained his steadfast love towards Noah. He has remembered Noah and maintained his covenant faithfulness towards Noah. And as Noah now disembarks from the ark, surely he is marveling at what God has done around him. As he beholds the devastation that has been brought upon the earth and he marvels at the mercy that God has shown to his family, surely he recognizes that this God demands our obedience. And that's what Noah was known for. He obeys the Lord. He is a man who is righteous. He walks blamelessly before his contemporaries. But Noah also rightly recognizes that such a God of tremendous power and of greatness demands our worship. You see, it's significant that Noah's first act upon exiting the ark is to build an altar and worship Lord. Just as God had remembered Noah and acted in covenant faithfulness, so now Noah remembers the Lord and acts in sacrificial worship to him. If you remember last week, we saw that God remembered Noah and acted upon his remembering of Noah, acted in covenant faithfulness by sovereignly causing the waters to cease after God had accomplished his purposes in the world through it. He gave Noah a sign of his faithfulness and then ultimately gave Noah his word to disembark from the ark. And now Noah worships by offering a sacrifice to the Lord. He has experienced God's covenant faithfulness and he responds in worship. And such should be the response of all who have experienced God's covenant faithfulness. We should respond with Noah in true and sincere worship at what the Lord God has done in our lives. And yet at times we find ourselves distracted from worship. It would have been easy tempting for Noah to be thinking of all the things that he had going on. In fact, he's starting from square one completely from scratch. He has absolutely nothing and I imagine on the final days on the ark Noah is thinking to himself I, I've got to start a fire I've got to build shelter I've got to have food and water and clothing I've got to have all of these things but the first thing that Noah does is worship he builds an altar to the Lord and sacrifices upon it and worships giving thanks and pleading for Atonement. You see, worship holds preeminence for Noah over all other activities in his life. So the question comes before us then, how often is worship a priority for us? I don't mean only on the Lord's Day as we gather with the saints to worship, though that's a part of what I mean. But the Christian life is a life of worship, of private worship and of public worship. Our total lives are marked by the worship of the Lord our God. Every act that we do and every word that we speak is to some degree ought to be worshipful to the Lord. We have, as Noah did, observed the character and greatness of God. We have received his word and experienced his saving grace through his covenant faith faithfulness ought we not to acknowledge his worthiness by our worship and yet all too often we find ourselves distracted by the things of the world and so as we think about Noah's worship and our our need to join in worship with him we want to consider the nature of Noah's worship in verse 20 in verse 20 the Bible says then Noah built an ark to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offering on the altar. You see, Noah's priority here was worship. He was a righteous man, a faithful man, but he now worships God, acknowledging that it was ultimately God who delivered him in faithfulness. He immediately upon departing the ark acknowledges God's mercy to him, and so Noah, now as we have seen over the past few weeks, as this second Adam, so to speak, is setting up and establishing the world that he lives in as one that is uh, lived according to God's design for his creatures to worship Him, and He does that by building this altar and offering sacrifice upon it, and He approaches God through animal sacrifice. Now why does Noah do this? Why does he offer an animal sacrifice upon the altar? Well think all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3 upon the sin of Adam and Eve and their transgression against God's law God uh, reconciles them to himself and restores their alienation from himself by slaying animals and making clothing from skins for the man and his wife. God clothes them, secures them, reconciles them back to himself by offering this sacrifice. In the same way, we see in Genesis chapter 4 that in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also presented an offering, and that offering was of the firstborn of his flock. And we read there in Genesis 4 that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And the Lord asked him the question then, Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And so we see, beginning with Adam and then in Abel, that the godly are marked by offering a sacrifice not of their works, not of the fruit of their labor, but offering an animal sacrifice as a substitutionary atonement, that by the shedding of that blood and by the slaying of that animal, they might be reconciled back to God. And from Adam and Abel and then through the line of Seth, we read in Genesis chapter 5 that there is a people that began to call upon the name of the Lord and from. Seth all the way through Lamech down to Noah, this was passed on. And so Noah is a part of this godly line that calls upon the name of the Lord, worshiping him and offering blood sacrifice to him. And they approach God not by their own goodness, but by the offering of an animal sacrifice as God modeled in the garden. And so Noah approaches God through this sacrifice of an an animal. Now, the purpose of this sacrifice, I think, was a multitude. I think there were several reasons that Noah offers this sacrifice. I think the first of which is it is an act of consecration. You see the burnt offering we learn later in the law of Moses, which, by the way, the book of Genesis is being written to us by Moses. But we learn uh, as God fleshes that out in the law of Moses that the burnt offering was to be completely consumed there was to be nothing left over and the burnt offering was to be offered by clean animals representing purity and holiness and so Noah is offering this animal sacrifice of clean animals upon this altar as an act of consecration of himself but also of humanity to the Lord. You see, this is a commitment that he is setting himself apart to the Lord and that he is setting the entire human race apart to the Lord. He is offering these consecrated, pure, holy animals representing his offering of himself to God, consecrating, setting himself apart. But not only is it an act of consecration, I think it's an act of thanksgiving. He was Thankful to God for his mercy and goodness to him. You see, Noah has been saved merely, uh, completely by God's grace. Isn't that what we read back in Genesis chapter 6 that Noah found favor with the Lord? It is because he found favor. It's because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord that Noah was a righteous man. He has been saved by grace. He was delivered from the judgment. God commanded Noah to build an ark. And through the building of that ark, by faith, Noah was delivered from judgment. And then God institutes his covenant promise to Noah, making his covenant with him. And God remembered Noah. Noah, You see, everything that Noah has now had come from God, and Noah acknowledges this by giving of the animals that he had in sacrifice to God. He doesn't give begrudgingly, though it might have been tempting for Noah to say, Lord, these are the only clean animals we have. Maybe we need to let them multiply for a little while before we begin this process of offering. But in faith, Noah offers a sacrifice to God in thanksgiving for what God has done for him. So this is an act of consecration. It's an act of thanksgiving, but primarily and ultimately, this is an act of atonement. This offering is an atoning sacrifice like Adam and like Abel and Seth and Lamech before him. Noah offers a sacrifice to God to atone for his sins. He he recognizes that he has a sin problem. Though he has found grace in the eyes of the Lord and though he's marked off as a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries, he recognizes that his heart is the same heart that God condemned back in Genesis chapter 6 when he says the intentions of the human heart are evil continually. And so Noah recognizes his own sinfulness and he also recognizes God's judgment against that sin. God has just destroyed the world by a flood of judgment upon this wickedness. And Noah acknowledges from the outset that that same sin that warranted the judgment of God resides in his own heart and soul. And so he seeks to escape the wrath of God again against his own sin by offering an appropriate sacrifice. The very first thing that he does upon disembarking from the ark is offer this sacrifice to appease the wrath of God and to atone for his own sin. This worshipful act of Noah is centered upon a redemptive sacrifice. And so this atoning sacrifice does two things for Noah. It takes away the guilt of his sin. And Noah recognizes, recognizes himself to be a sinner. And so this atoning sacrifice takes away the guilt of his sin through the payment of a penalty or an offering of atonement. Noah knew that his Uh, personal guilt needed to be taken away and he also knew what was written down centuries millennia later that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins but not only that not only does it take away his guilt it turns aside the wrath of God it appeases his judgment it appeases God's Wrath. You see, Noah has just witnessed the wrath of God in a very tangible, realistic way. He has seen God flood the earth to destroy the sin that resides in his very heart. He's witnessed God's wrath and he feared God's wrath would come against him. And he knew that God's wrath must be turned away. It must be appeased. It must be propitiated and Noah knew that it would only be a matter of time before sin reared its ugly head within his own life or within the life of his offspring and so he offers a sacrifice. God doesn't flood the earth in this sense to start over. There are still sinners coming out the other side of the ark. Noah is not innocent in the way that Adam was innocent and so sin still exists In the world, and there was not yet this guarantee that God would flood the earth again. And so Noah offers sacrifice to turn aside God's wrath. Noah is doing what has been passed down to him generation after generation. God instituted this principle in the garden and the godly line has passed it down generation after generation that through the shedding of blood, through the slaying of an animal, God's wrath against sin is appeased, propitiated, and our sin can be imputed to that animal, to that sacrifice and, God, and we can be atoned for, we can be reconciled back to God. And so Noah kills these animals for his own sin to appease the wrath of God. He doesn't come like Cain, offering the works of his hands. He doesn't offer to God what he has done. But by faith, he brings that which God has promised to accept an animal sacrifice, which propitiates, atones for, appeases the wrath of God. Well, it is no wonder then that the New Testament speaks of Christ Jesus in this same way. We read in Romans chapter three that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so this sacrifice that Noah offers points us forward into the future as he looks in faith to that promised seed that was promised by God in Genesis chapter 3 that there would be one who would come and crush the head of the serpent once and for all and would redeem the seed of the woman for all time. This sacrifice that Noah offers is in hope and in faith that there is one to come who will redeem him from his sins. And Paul rightly recognizes that that one, that seed of the woman promises in Genesis 3 is none other than Christ Jesus himself. He is the one who offered not the blood of bulls and goats but offered his own blood as an atoning sacrifice to take away our guilt and to appease the wrath of God on our behalf. He is our atoning sacrifice. And Noah does this in another way that speaks to us of Christ you see this sacrifice is not the only thing in this text that speaks to us of the Lord Jesus but the way that Noah offers this as a representative of the entire humanity. He offers this sacrifice as a second Adam, a mediator for the entire human race. Certainly his family is gathered around him as he offers this sacrifice upon the altar and he functions as a priest and a mediator between God and sinful humanity. And in doing so, he points us to the one true and perfect mediator That Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. And so not only does the sacrifice of blood that Noah has spilled upon this altar that is given up to God to atone for his sins point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, but the way that he mediates on behalf of sinful humanity as a covenant representative of the entire human race points us to the Lord Jesus as our covenant representative And our mediator. And because of this, brothers and sisters, we are able to enter the presence of God and worship him. You see, Noah's worship is redemptive in nature. He doesn't enter by the works of his hands. He doesn't enter by his own ability. He enters by the sacrifice of another and worships the Lord his God. Because of the blood of Christ, Noah enters into the presence of God and worships him. Therefore, like Noah, we can enter the presence of God and worship him. Oh, but brothers and sisters, the dire warning of this text is that because Christ has secured us access to God, let us not put anything before the worship of him. Let us not allow things to pull us away. Let us not allow things to distract us from the worship of God. How many things become priorities in life above the worship of God? We get so distracted and caught up in the things of the world that we fail to stop and worship God and thank Him for what He has done for us in Christ Jesus. Even simpler than that, how often do we allow things to pull us away from worship on the Lord's Day, the day that He has set aside for us to worship Him and to praise His name as a gathered people in the name of Christ. Oh, may worship of God be a priority for us. And not only do we gather to worship him on the Lord's day, but daily we offer ourselves as a act of worship to God. Paul writes in Romans 12 that in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Brothers and sisters, God has given all to us in Christ Jesus. We sang of that just a few moments ago that in Christ Jesus, there is nothing more now for heaven to give. He has given all to us in Christ Jesus. And now he asks us in return to give ourselves to him as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. Our lives and the way that we live is daily an act of worship to God. And so, brothers and sisters, let us, like Noah, consecrate ourselves, set ourselves apart to the worship of God. Let us thank God for what he has given to us. But more than anything, let us approach God only through the atoning work of Christ Jesus. Our worship must be redemptive. Dear friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ in this way, you've never thought of your need for an atoning sacrifice. You've never thought of your need to be reconciled back to God. The message of this text to you is clear. You need to be reconciled to God, and that is only accomplished through the shed blood of Jesus Christ you may be sitting here this morning and you think to yourself well I'm not worthy to approach God there's no way that God is going to accept me you are exactly right but he will accept his son if you will put your faith and trust in him you will be covered by the blood of Christ and cleansed from your sins But if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself that I don't need Jesus, God will accept me for who I am. I'm a pretty good person. After all, I do some good things in the world. Surely God is going to accept me. He certainly will not. As surely as he rejected the offering of Cain, he will reject your offering as well. Only through faith in the sacrifice offered once for all time for sin can you be made right with God. You cannot offer the works of your hands. You cannot offer your goodness. You cannot approach God in worship apart from a mediator. You can only approach God in and through the person and work of Christ Jesus. And so if you will turn from your sin and believe upon Christ, you will be saved and reconciled back to God. Well, as we consider Noah's worship, it is important that we also consider how God responds to noah's worship how does god respond to this sacrifice that noah has offered to god look with me at verse 21 when the lord smelled the pleasing aroma he said to himself i will never again curse the ground because of human beings even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward and i will never again strike down every living thing as i have Done. You see, we read here in verse 21 that the Lord accepts his sacrifice. He smells the aroma that is arising from the altar. And as he smells this aroma, it is pleasing to the Lord. And the Lord promises never again to curse the ground because of. Human beings. Now, we want to acknowledge here, just as we did back in Genesis 2, as God breathes into Adam the breath of life. So, here we have God breathing in the sweet-smelling aroma of this sacrifice. This is uh, what is called an anthropomorphism. This is attributing human-like language to God. God doesn't have nostrils like we do, nor does He breathe in and smell like we do. Yet, this is an acknowledgment that God has accepted Noah's offering. And it's interesting that that word for pleasing there shares the same root in the Hebrew as the name Noah. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, Lamech names his son Noah in hopes that he will bring relief from the curse of the ground, that he will bring rest from the curse that they are experiencing. And so this word for pleasing here implies it's a rest-inducing aroma. And so just as Noah is named Noah in hopes of rest, so we see here that this offered sacrifice rests, so to speak, the wrath of God. God's wrath is appeased. It finds rest in this sacrifice. And so while the odor of burning flesh may not be pleasing to us, God's wrath is turned aside by the smoke that goes up from this offering. And God resolves never to destroy the world By a flood again, look with me at verse 21 again. I will never, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And so as Noah, uh, what a wonderful promise, what a, a wonderful sign to Noah that as he perhaps wonders, will God flood the world again? God promises never again. You see, God has shown his wrath. He has shown his justice against sin. Uh, and he was determined to show that judgment against sin. But now that he has, God resolves never again to destroy the world in this way. And God resolves within himself as he speaks to himself. We hear the inner Trinitarian conversation that occurs here that the wrath of God is satisfied. And the judgment of God against sin has been Shown, But why would God now forbear this judgment? Why will he never again pour out his wrath? Why will he never again flood the earth? It is because of his mercy upon sinners. Isn't that what the text says? I will never again flood the earth because the inclinations of the human heart are evil from youth onward. This is the very reason that God wrought the flood upon the earth to begin with. Back in Genesis chapter 6, we read there that the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Therefore, the Lord regretted that he had made man upon the earth. God destroyed the earth because of the sinfulness of man. And now God, in compassion, recognizes that the same sin that brought him to destroy the earth to begin with is the same sin that resides in man continually from youth onward. It is an act of mercy to God. The very sin that resides in us is the reason that God promises never again to flood the earth. He is evil from his youth onward. Onward that the depravity of the human heart is real and tangible and demonstrable from his youth from the very beginning we read in psalm fifty one in sin my mother conceived me from childhood and even beyond to conception. We are sinners by nature, and our nature has not and will not change apart from a supernatural Work of grace, but because of God's mercy upon us, as he acknowledges our feeble estate, as he sees that we are nothing but mere dust, God has compassion upon us as his creatures. You see, it is God alone, ultimately, who knows the depth of depravity in the human heart. That's why Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? He replies in verse 10, the Lord, I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. While we sit around thinking that we're decent people, pretty good in the sight of God, God acknowledges and recognizes the very depths of depravity in our hearts, that our intentions are evil from youth onward. And yet, in spite of that, knowing the very depths of depravity that we can't even see ourselves, God has mercy upon us as his creatures and says, I will never again flood the earth forbearing that judgment. You see, the flood taught us about God's holiness and his justice against sin, but now he shows us his mercy. Judgment is a right response against sin, but it is not a solution. Judgment does not offer the answer. It doesn't solve the problem. Man continues in their iniquity. But God does not say never again because man is better. It's actually the opposite. God determines not to flood the earth again because of man's sinfulness so that his mercy might be magnified. And so he restrains his judgment upon the earth. And we read this poem in verse 22. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night will not cease we see this cycle of agriculture and as human sustenance is continued to be given by God sea time and harvest cold and heat the seasons will continue god is going to keep creation in its order year after year and these cycles of day and night that are necessary for human existence will continue by the mercy of god in his common grace to man he will continue as long as the earth endures to cause it to rain upon the just and the unjust and cause His Son to rise on the evil and the good. This is undeserved mercy. This is God's kindness to humanity because He has shown His justice against sin and now He is showing us His mercy. But we must know and recognize that this is not perpetual, but that it will eventually come to an end, it says, as long as the earth endures. You see, this phrase, while the earth endures, indicates that there is that this will not continue forever. God promises not to judge the earth by water, but there will be a final day of judgment when God brings his creation to an end and will inaugurate a new creation. Peter speaks of this in Second Peter three, when he says through these words, through these The world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God flooded His world and judged it. And now it is being kept for judgment and the destruction of the ungodly being stored up by fire. There is coming a final day when God will purify His creation from sin completely and in totality. And He will then show His justice and He will show His grace to those who are in Christ Jesus. And dear Christian, on that final day, The only thing that will matter is what we have done for Christ. The only thing that will matter is how how we have worshipped Him with our lives and with our words and with our deeds and with our actions. The only thing that will matter is our lives of holiness and our lives of faith as we have consecrated ourselves to the Lord and done all to the glory of God. It will not matter what we have or what we have achieved secularly. All that will matter is Christ. All that will matter is what we have done in honor of him. And so, dear Christian, we draw near to God and we worship his name because we have the promise of deliverance on that last day. I'm reminded of 1 Thessalonians 1 where the apostle calls Jesus the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. Because we have hope in Christ Jesus, because we have hope of deliverance from the coming wrath in which the earth is uh, is stored up for judgment on that last day, because we have hope in Christ Jesus, we worship him and we live for him. And we have the promise that because we are in Christ Jesus, he will never again turn his wrath upon us. Mirrored in these words, never again, are the final words of Jesus upon the cross of Calvary. As he draws his final breath, do you remember his final words? He says, it is finished. He has accomplished atonement. He has propitiated, turned away the wrath of God. He has taken away the guilt of sin for his people. And because Christ has cried, it is finished. And because God has said never again, dear Christian, God's wrath will never be poured out on you. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have hope for deliverance from the wrath to come. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ in this way, you have every promise of God that though you will never be destroyed by a flood of judgment of water upon the earth, there is coming a day when God will flood the earth with fire and He will destroy it in a final judgment and in doing that, He will bring forth a new heaven and a new earth. He will make a new creation and you, if you are outside of Christ, will have no part of it. You will perish in eternal and everlasting fire under the judgment and wrath of of God. But there is salvation for you. There is hope in Christ Jesus to be redeemed and delivered and rescued from the wrath to come. If you will repent of your sins and turn to Christ Jesus today, you will be rescued from the coming judgment of God. And so, as we close this morning and think about. Uh, the implications of this text—we have seen the character of God in so many tremendous ways, and I think this text, above all, highlights God's mercy to us as sinful people. We are a sinful people who dwell among a sinful people, and we have sinful, unclean lips. And yet, God in Christ Jesus has reconciled us back to Himself. And made us who were aliens near to him so that we might worship his name. And so we who have experienced God's covenant faithful respond in worship. Because his wrath has been turned away from us in Christ Jesus. And such is why we gather today. Such is why the church exists. And such is the message that we as a congregation take to a lost and dying world around us. And so let us go to him in prayer to that end. Oh God, we come before you thanking you for Christ. Thanking you that he is our atoning sacrifice, the only atoning sacrifice. Lord, we cannot offer the blood of bulls and goats. We cannot offer the works of our hands. We can plead only the merits of Christ and his righteousness and his shed blood upon the cross. Father, we recognize that where our sin runs deep, your mercy is more Lord, you know our hearts better than we know ourselves. And you know and understand the very depths of depravity that we cannot even see within our own hearts. And yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.